that was started by a group of artists about five years ago. And the way it works in this project is that a blank canvas is set up in a public space in a particular city and the canvas is then left there for 12 hours and everyone who happens to walk past it is asked to paint a picture of love on the canvas, paint a picture of love as they see it. And the result is a collection, a sort of collaborative painting of how people in that city think of love. Here's some of the paintings produced so far. Here's what Copenhagen thinks of love. Here's Vienna. Here's Amsterdam. Here's what New York thinks of love. Now, I'm not an art critic, but I reckon what's really interesting is how diverse all the different elements in these paintings are. I mean, have a look, if you can, at this New York one. In the painting, there's flowers, there's faces, there's love hearts, there's a pair of lips, there's the Twin Towers, there's a painting of the earth, there's a yin-yang symbol, there's words written there, aren't there? References to mum, daughters, John Lennon. Lots and lots of really different elements, which I suspect should not surprise us, because it does seem the case that love, at least as a word, it's nowadays used in lots and lots of different contexts and meanings, doesn't it? For example, I've just recently finished a new book by Ray Galea. On the back of the book, in the little blurb about the author, it says this, Ray loves his wife Sandy, his three children, eating Middle Eastern food, listening to Bob Dylan, watching films set in New York. Now, putting aside the fact that I have no idea how anyone could love listening to Bob Dylan, but putting aside that fact, in the same sentence he says he loves his wife and he loves Middle Eastern food. Now, I'm sure Ray Galea means something a little different in each case. I hope he means something a little bit different in each case. But that's the way we use the word love, isn't it? It can mean so many different things. And it sort of begs the question, is there one really central meaning of what love is? What is it? Last week we considered the why question. Why is loving one another so important? This week I'd like us to pursue the what question. Is it possible to sift through all the different options of what love is? Is it possible to come up with one particular image of love that especially captures what loving one another is all about? Well, God reckons there is one particular image that best reflects what love is. It's the image of a cross with his son nailed on it dying alone in the dark. Verses 9 and 10 of the reading we just heard. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. See, here's the image of love to have. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I want to briefly tease out four features mentioned in those sentences. 
four features of what love is, four features of the way God has loved us, and therefore four features of the way these verses are saying we ought to love one another. The first one is that love is selfless. Verse 10 again, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us. Now, at the risk of asking the obvious, who does that verse say God loves? Who did Jesus go to the cross as an attaining sacrifice for our sins for? Who did Christ die for? Who, in a sense, was Jesus thinking of as he hung there on the cross? It's an extraordinary thing to think about because, remember, Jesus is the Son of God. This is God up there on the cross. At any minute, he could have decided, hey, enough's enough. At any moment, the thought just had to cross his mind and a legion of angels would have rushed to his protection. And it never crossed his mind because he wasn't thinking of himself. He was thinking of us. And verse 10 points out, hey, that's love. It's a mindset where you think and you do things for other people and not yourself. Love is selfless. And I know that this almost seems too an obvious thing to even have to say, but I suspect we need to keep hearing it because we are very good at allowing ourselves to drift back onto centre stage. The famous composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein was once asked which musical instrument did he think was the hardest to play in an orchestra. Without hesitating, he responded, second violin. No one wants to play second violin because everyone wants to play first. Just before he was crowned as the 2010 Australian Master Chef last Sunday night, Adam Lior stood before the judges and said through teary eyes that he just wanted to stop coming second at things. Our default setting is to want to come first. And God says that that's not actually love. Love is not fitting other people into your schedule. Love is not only doing things when they suit you. Not as, not, love is not only doing those things because they make you feel good about yourself. Love actually focuses on other people. In fact, it focuses on other people even to, and here's the second thing, sacrificial levels. Verse 9, and here's the critical phrase to notice, one and only son. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now, at one level, it would have been enough for that verse to simply say that God sent his son into the world. Huh? That would have got the point across. It says one and only son because that phrase is tapping us into the heartache of what it costs God to send Jesus and to send him to the cross. See, to be honest, at one level, I'm not sure what was happening on the cross when Jesus hung there. The Bible gives us everyday images to help us think about it, words like ransom, sacrifice. It uses those sorts of images to help us understand something of what was happening. But yet at another level, I don't think we can really fully understand what was going on as Jesus hung on the cross because something extraordinary was happening within God. That Jesus, the Son of God, as he hung there on a cross in Palestine, meanwhile in heaven, something of cosmic 
traumatic proportions was happening within God himself. As God satisfied both his sense of justice and his desire to love. And perhaps the most heart, the, the heart-wrenching nature of it all is best reflected in those final words of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you're a parent, you know what it's like to perhaps drop your child off at preschool or kindy for the first time. And maybe you know the pull that it does to your heartstrings as you perhaps had to walk away with your child crying and calling out your name. Dad, don't go. I want to come home with you. And as Jesus hung in the dark on the cross, he called out, to a dad who had loved him for all eternity. And his dad didn't answer. It's a mystery what exactly was going on inside God at that moment. But what the Bible makes crystal clear to us is that it cost God incredibly. It was at the level of hurt of having to forsake your one and only child. I can't begin to imagine that. And John here is saying that's the standard of love we are now being called to towards the other people in this room. That level of sacrifice. It's what Jesus was getting at when he famously said to his disciples in John 13, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now that's a fairly familiar verse, I suspect. But have you ever wondered in what sense it's a new commandment from Jesus? I mean, all through the Old Testament, God had been telling his people to love one another. It's hardly new to be telling his disciples to love each other. The newness of the command is the extraordinary new level to which they are now to love one another. As I have loved you. So you must love one another. Saying that we are to love one another, we are to love the others here to even profoundly sacrificial levels. We're to love the others here in ways that will cost us and ways that will inconvenience us. And if it's not costing us and if it's not inconveniencing us, it's not enough. Especially so because thirdly, love like God's, love we are to have for one another. It's not only selfless, it's not only sacrificial, it's unconditional. And here the critical phrase to notice is the one in verse 10 that says, not that we loved God. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. In other words, God's love of us was not initiated by our love of him. God didn't start loving us after we got our act together. He didn't start loving us after we pulled our socks up and got our quiet times in order. He didn't love us after we made the first move. Other bits of the Bible make it obviously the reverse that was the case. We were dead in sin. We were dead in transgressions. We had nothing to contribute whatsoever. And yet God so loved us enough to send his one and only son. We're seeing that that love here is unconditional. Love doesn't rely on the other person being attractive. Love doesn't rely on the other person being pleasant. Love is not determined by the loveliness of the other person. Love is generated within the character of the lover. 
1 Corinthians makes this unconditional nature of love really delightful, I think. 1 Corinthians 13, that famous chapter, Paul's describing how the church ought to be using their spiritual gifts in love. He famously says this, Love is patient. Love is kind. Maybe you've heard this at weddings. Love doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Now, the thing to notice is that they are totally unconditional statements. There are no excuse clauses. There's no small print down the bottom of the page. There's no list of mitigating circumstances. It does not say love is patient unless that person really is getting on your nerves. It doesn't say love is not easily angered except when that same person forgets they're on the roster again. It does not say love keeps no record of wrongs except, of course, for that person who's been giving you a hard time for years. It does not say love always perseveres unless, of course, no one has noticed all your hard work. They are unconditional statements. And it's in this way that love, that God's love, the love that we're to have for one another, it's actually going beyond feelings at this point, isn't it? Because the love being spoken of here is far more than simply having a warm feeling towards someone who you happen to get on with. Love here, this is involving a commitment of our minds. It's a conscious decision, a conscious decision to selfish, selflessly, sacrificially do things for others even if you don't feel like it, even if you don't think they deserve it, even if you don't think they'll notice it, even if you don't think they'll thank you for it. Love is selfless, sacrificial, unconditional. And fourthly, it's purposeful. This is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friends, notice that in that sentence, God's love in sending Jesus, it had an edge to it. It had an aim, it had a purpose, it had a direction. There was a reason behind it. It was to make atoning sacrifice for sin. Now, the word atoning means to make amends for something, you know, to repair something that's damaged. If I was to borrow your car and carelessly have an accident in it, making atonement for that would mean me making arrangements to have it fixed, paying for the repairs, making sure you had another car to use while it was being fixed. That's what it means to make atonement. It's to fix a problem. That's why God sent his son. The problem is our sin. It drives a wedge between us and God. Jesus came, he was sent to be an atoning sacrifice through his death. Through his death, he took a punishment we deserved. He took it on himself, and as such, it repairs the damage in the relationship. It allows us to be forgiven and reconciled back to God. So that there was a purpose behind God's love. It wasn't just a mushy, sentimental sort of thing. It was so we could be adopted children. Now, that purpose to God's love... I take it from this verse, is also a purpose that we should have as we love one another. Not in the sense of making atoning sacrifice, that's a unique role that only Jesus could have, but that direction to the love, the direction of wanting to connect us to God, that direction of wanting us to be close to God, that's a direction our love ought to have as well. 
What it means is that being a Christian and loving the others in the room is, simply more, is much more than simply being nice to one another. I hope we are, but it's more than that. Loving one another is more than having a cup of coffee and catching up during the week. Real love seeks to strengthen someone's relationship with God. And so, for example, real love asks God questions in a conversation. When you do catch up over coffee, maybe, and life is not working for someone, real love asks them, where's God in all of this? Do you think God might be teaching you something in all of this? Are you managing to stay loyal to God in all this? Because real love, love in the same direction as God's, it's got a purpose to it. It's got an aim. That's how he loved us. Selflessly, sacrificially, unconditionally, purposefully. And that is how we are called on in these verses to love one another. Verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, in order to feel the correct tone of that verse, I think we've got to understand the sense in which John is using the word ought there. Because when verse 11 says, we also ought to love one another, do not hear that, please, as a detached moralistic command. That's not the tone at all. We mustn't forget the previous two verses that we looked at last week. We mustn't forget the idea that as God's reborn children, to be loving is in a sense who we are. It's what we've been reborn for. And so when John says we ought to love one another, he means ought in the sense that fish ought to swim. He means ought in the sense that birds ought to fly. He means ought in the sense that dogs ought to bark. When he says we ought to love the way God has loved us, he's not actually telling us to do anything against our will. We're not being ordered to do something that we actually don't want to do. We're being encouraged to be who we are. Who in our heart of hearts we want to be. See, a few years ago when I was younger and vaguely fit, I used to play competition squash. Hard to believe, I know, but back then I did. And every now and then we would get a visit from a friend of ours who was a very, very good squash player. I'm talking very, very good. Uh, Grant was in the Army. He'd represented Australia in squash within the Armed Forces competition. And whenever he'd visit, because he just carried a squash racket everywhere he went, we'd have a game together. Always the same thing happened. First game, he completely thrashed me. Second game, he'd start messing around, play left-handed while he was actually right-handed. He'd still thrash me. After that, we'd have a bit of a lesson, and he'd tell me what I was doing wrong. He'd tell me ways to improve my game, and he would always say the same thing. Watch the ball, keep your head down. I knew before he even said it what he was going to say. Watch the ball, keep your head down. And that was fine. I didn't mind. I needed to keep hearing it. I wanted to keep hearing it because I wanted to improve. That's the tone of these verses. When John tells us we ought to love one another the way God has loved us, it's the equivalent of being told, hey, watch the ball, 
Keep your head down. And just like my squash advice wasn't really telling me anything I didn't know, I'm pretty sure that for many of you here this morning, you have not heard a thing new. The fact that love needs to be selfless, sacrificial, unconditional, purposeful, I'm sure you've heard it all before. That's fine. We need to keep hearing it, don't we? God's children, we don't mind rehearing this because we want to improve at being who we are, people of love. So why not improve by consciously practising these things? Maybe even pick one of the four that you know could use a bit of work. Perhaps pick the one that you feel weakest at. For example, maybe you're the sort of person who already is sacrificially doing things for other people. Maybe you are already going out of your way to care for people in really practical ways. But maybe it's the purposeful aspect of love that you might need to work on. The consciously bringing God into the conversations. The consciously strengthening someone in their faith. Maybe you're the reverse. Maybe you're very comfortable and happy to talk about Jesus with others. Maybe you're very happy and comfortable to encourage others in their faith. You're just not very sacrificial about it. You tend to do it on your terms, when it suits you, when you happen to bump into them, and you hardly go out of your way. Maybe it's the unconditional aspect to love that you could work on, that in all honesty, you play favourites. And so there are people that you do care very much about. But here at church, there's also a whole bunch of other people that you barely notice because they take a bit more effort. Friends, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That's love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I know in your heart of hearts it's what you want to do. It's who we are. I'll pray. Father, again we thank you for the way that you have loved us. Thank you that by Jesus being an atoning sacrifice for our sins, we have become your children. We have been reborn, that your love is actually in us. And so, Father, we would like to ask that by your word and spirit, the encouragement of these verses would change us, that we would indeed improve at loving one another, that we would work to love one another in the way that you have loved us selflessly, sacrificially, unconditionally, with purpose. Amen.